Welcome to Why Therapy, a podcast where we're here for mental health professionals about how therapy actually works and how it might be helpful for you. I'm Matt Shedd. What happens if a therapist properly understands their client's unique brain differences and challenges? Well, it can potentially save the client and the therapist years of pursuing therapeutic interventions, which might work perfectly well for other people, but are ineffective for that client's particular brain. Kelly Willard started incorporating neurodiversity into her work as a therapist when she officially received an ADHD diagnosis. And that started to become my focus of, wow, my kids are different. I think I'm a little different. My husband may be a little different. Who is out there in this field of psychology helping people like us from a strengths-based supportive perspective? Better understanding of how her own brain was functioning helped her shift her entire perspective, not just on her own daily life, but also on working with individuals and couples as a therapist. So you, you focus on neurodiversity in your work. Can you tell us for the uninitiated what that term means and how it informs your work? Well, absolutely. So I can tell you what neurodiversity isn't, right? Neurodiversity isn't just a really nice, fluffy concept. It is not anti-medication or anti-support, um, although I, I bet there would be some neurodiversity proponents that would have their own thoughts on that. So I won't speak for everyone, but in general, neurodiversity is a biological reality, not a concept. And uh, people who believe in neurodiversity are people like scientists and moms and me and everyday people because the brain is as unique as fingerprints. There are over 100,000, I'm sorry, 100 billion neurons in the human brain that can be arranged in an infinite amount of combinations. And so this is something uh, similar to the biological diversity of species of animals and plants and brains. And so I am a therapist that wants to make people aware of that and help them embrace their differences and their challenges instead of thinking that there are disease, disease processes happening mm -hmm. that are uh, looked at very negatively and with stigma and shame. So has that always been part of your work as a therapist? Things really ramped up for me in this department for a couple of key reasons, personal reasons. So when I was studying psychology in high school, college, grad school, I just really had a heart to help people, really wanted to help couples in particular. I thought, well, I can talk to a rock about anything. And so let's do Christian sex therapy because not a lot of people are comfortable with that. I love to talk to people. This is my path. And so neurodiversity was not really on my radar yet. Ironically, I am ADHD off the charts and didn't know it. And so then when I started having children, their brain issues came to the surface because I have children with brain differences. And that started to become my focus of, wow, my kids are different. I think I'm a little different. My husband may be a little different. Who is out there in this field of psychology helping people like us from a strengths-based supportive perspective and not a disease model or something that is quite stigmatizing and quite frankly, traditional in a way that doesn't, doesn't help us. I had been to therapy before, my husband and I had been to therapy before, my kids were going to all these therapies. Some of it was just bad. Mm. And so I felt a need in the field to come in with a neurodiversity perspective that I immediately fell in love with when I started to research and understand. 
So you have both the personal experience of incorporating neurodiversity into your your own therapy journey, and now the experience of helping others kind of through that process, it sounds like. Yes, and I'm a bit of an endangered species, it seems like within the therapy field, and it's on my heart to teach other therapists about this because so many therapists are really well-meaning and maybe they have brain differences themselves, but not a lot of therapists are as open as I am. Therapy is not about me, obviously, but I'm very quick to share with people in my profile and in our first session that I understand what it's like to have a brain that's not neurotypical Mm -hmm. and to live a long time. My diagnosis was not until I was 38 years old, to live a long time with negative messaging about myself, thinking I was just undisciplined and that I was too intense. My feelings were too intense. And then having a diagnosis now and a biological explanation for these differences and then the right supports to help me to maximize my brain and body potential, it's been life-changing. And so I love when people come in thinking they're broken. And then I say, well, if you're broken, I'm broken. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's maybe look at ourselves a little differently. And I help them to have a different relationship with their brain, which is the foundation for all their other relationships. And they can start looking at their dynamics with their spouse or their children differently through a lens of love and acceptance and support instead of stigma and shame and denial and all this negative messaging about how broken we are. That's beautiful. Um, and I, if, you, if you're comfortable with it, I'd like to hear more about what that experience was like for you. And maybe that can be a window into talking about what it's like for clients or people who might be listening. Um, yes, yes. So, oh, go ahead. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's my exciting. I would love to talk to people. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna interrupt you. Sorry about that. No, 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 no. I it 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 can be tricky with the time delay. There's a slight time delay always with Zoom. No, this is just me, Matt. <laughs> Thank you for kindly giving me that, but this is just me. And I, <laughs> I have learned, I think there's something about turning almost 40 now. I was diagnosed at 38, uh, turning almost 40, realized that, I mean, some of my earliest memories were of depression and anxiety. I just assumed that, and this is in my family tree, of course, there's a huge genetic component to this. I just assumed that a lot of the challenges in my life were because I was too intense or, you know, my family dynamics were kind of nutty at times. And so, uh, you know, being this loud, fun, Hispanic person was just sometimes great. And I always had a lot of friends and everything. And sometimes it was just really, really hard and challenging. And I thought, well, everybody must struggle like this, or maybe I struggle more than others, but whatever, it's just life. And I'm just going to be anxious and depressed and burn out all the time and high achieving in one area in life, but then low achieving elsewhere. It's just a mess. And so when I realized that I saw myself in my kids, what certain behaviors um, and just that our challenges in our family were just fundamentally different than a lot of my other friends' experiences. And I say different, meaning that there's a difference in intensity, duration, and frequency uh, of let's say something like a child who is a quote unquote picky eater. For a neurodivergent brain, the duration, intensity, and frequency of the quote unquote picky eating is just fundamentally different. It's not something that can be solved by the latest parenting technique, uh, which is 
uh, that's a whole other tangent. <laughs> I have a lot to say about a lot of these common parenting techniques that are just somewhat cruel and not really honoring of brain differences. But anyway, so when I started seeing all that, I thought, well, this is, wow, that's exactly how I grew up. I, I had a hard time with textures and sounds and things. And back in the eighties that no one was giving little girls ADHD diagnosis. No one knew what sensory processing disorder was, which I also have. And so I just sort of internalized a lot of that. And I'm really trying to help my kids and my clients have a fundamentally different experience. Uh, so a lot of my work is helping people sort through the internalized messages about themselves and processing their experiences. Well, no, it's not that you were just a picky eater. It's that you have sensory aversions. Mm -hmm. And that's why even to this day, you have some disordered eating habits because this has never been supported or understood. And that's just one small example for a sensory component. So what, was there a moment leading up to when you got your diagnosis that you kind of realized, I think I need to, there might be something else going on here. My brain might be different than other people's. Like, was there a moment where you realized you needed to reach out to, to kind of get some help kind of figuring out what was going on? Yes. And I would say that the feeling of otherness or differentness has been with me my whole life, really. And I never had words for it. Again, I just thought that I was this big, vibrant, too loud person. And just, uh, I never knew that that could be, yes, I'm an extrovert. <laughs> yes, I am very vibrant. But it's also because my brain is low in dopamine. And so self-medication is seeking dopamine hits through people and experiences. And then I was always overcompensating, always an excellent nerdy student, but it took me a lot to, to do that. And I just thought, well, everybody works hard. I didn't realize how hard I was working above and beyond. And so uh, I had some real intense periods of burnout where, which were labeled then depression. And then after uh, having the children, like I said, it was, uh, that's a very common place for women in particular, very sort of, I hate functioning labels. I don't like to say high functioning, low functioning, but for very overcompensating women, let's just say, who have been missed on, there's not been a proper assessment of what's going on with their body and brain um, in their 30s, let's just say that they're having children, they, they kind of hit a wall to say that that's a difficult time for anyone having children. That's a very difficult transition for anyone having kids. But um, these women may have been really managing very well, or as well as they could with some periods of burnout that then they could recover from, mm -hmm. right? And they had all these strategies to do life and work and relationships well and everything. And then you add... <laughs> You hand them a baby, like mm -hmm. the famous comedian says, you know, what's it like having five babies? Well, imagine you have four, four babies and you're drowning and then someone tosses you another baby. Uh, <laughs> kind of, I think that's Jim Gaffigan. Um, there is uh, something there that I just realized something needs to, to change. And I'm not, I, I don't know what that is, but this isn't just anxiety and depression. It's certainly not, it's, there's certainly something different about my children. And so it's through their there's advocacy for them that I just started, that nerdy part of me kicked in. Mm. I love the brain. So I just went full tilt on learning about the brain and basically self-diagnosed myself and then actually went to get a brain scan and I saw it in black and white. Mm. There's, the, there's the thalamus that shows your depression region uh, for the deep limbic system. 
there's where your temporal lobes, when you are in concentration, a typical brain, the temporal lobes get activated. That's your executive functioning. They kick into gear to say, oh, I'm needed here. Let's do the planning. Let's do the organizing. Let's kick in to solve this problem. For an ADHD brain, the temporal lobes, when you need the most, when you're concentrating the hardest, when you're working the hardest, the blood stops flowing there. So the harder you work, the less access to that region you have. And so then you just think, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I'm trying so hard. Well, your brain is not getting the oxygen and blood flow that it needs. Biologically, it is different. It is diverse. It is divergent. And uh, don't beat yourself up for that. It's not your fault. It's like eye color. So where do you go to get a scan like that so you can see it in black and white? Like, Who do I contact? I love the Amen Clinics. The Amen Clinics are around the country. Uh, we're lucky to have one in Atlanta. I went to the Atlanta location, had such a good experience with the SPECT imagery process where your brain is scanned through SPECT imagery at rest and then after a concentration task. And of course, they're not just looking at a scan and saying, here's your diagnosis. It is a very comprehensive process of history taking and other testing and everything. The scan is a part of the process. It's not the only part of the process. And so I went and that was phenomenal. So it's not financially feasible for many people yet because it's not a widely recognized insurance validated type scan, but there is a lot of wonderful research. Otherwise I wouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. A lot of research. Uh, this clinic has done um, tens and tens of thousands of scans. And uh, this is something that is very helpful in the diagnostic process. And so I would highly recommend it to anyone who is thinking about it. And I'm actually going through a certified brain health coaching program with them so that then I am uh, taking neuroscience classes, basically, so that then I can explain all this to my clients. If they choose to go there, then I can do their aftercare really well. For clients that can't afford that, you can still work with them in terms of their neurodiversity, even if you don't have necessarily all the the map brain mapping and, and everything in black and white, like you said? Absolutely. It can be incredibly eye-opening when either I'm making a referral because I, I have a master's degree and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. So there are so many distinctions in our field of who can do what with what level of training. And so if I'm making a referral to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a neuropsychiatrist who are the, and other people in our field can actually do the, the testing and the, the old school kind of measurements for ADHD, autism, et cetera, et cetera, uh, learning challenges, uh, sensory processing challenges. Occupational therapists can sometimes do the sensory component quite well for their assessments. If I'm making that referral, then, and they come back with a report, hopefully that's been a good process for them. It, it is so helpful for a data point, but even if someone is not able to do any diagnosis at all, and, and no diagnosis at all, then I can talk to them about their sensory experience, the way their brain wiring likely works based on the patterns of their behavior and their life experiences. Obviously trauma plays a role here. The tra trauma actually rewires our brain in very key ways. So sometimes trauma can mimic some other processes or things like epilepsy or other sort of medical underlying um, things. So 
again, not a doctor, but I can say this is the picture of what's going on here. Here's where you might pursue accurate assessment and then come mm -hmm. back to me or, or throughout the whole process I'm with them. But really, I'm a licensed marriage family therapist. I'm going to say, well, how is this affecting your relationship with yourself? How is this affecting your relationship with your partner, your relationship with your kids, right? And that that's so rich. There's so much we can do there when that's informed by not just your brain functioning, but your feelings functioning and your habits and you know, all that's related. And people don't really think of the brain like that. It's such a vital part of who we are and what we do. And it's, it's not given appropriate consideration. Yeah. And I just, when you were saying that, I was just thinking about, you know, how, you know, when you don't know what you're looking at, what, what's going on and say someone has a history of trauma and their brain just uh, functions differently in, in certain situations, and then they're heaping on top. And, and so they, they can't perform necessarily in the same way that others might be able to. And then on top of that, they're heaping self-recrimination and blame and for something that's not, you know, that's not volitional or that they don't have control over. It's just, man, it kind of breaks your heart. It really does. My heart has been broken and encouraged so much since making this switch. I did traditional marriage counseling for, I would say probably about eight years or so. Um, and then that's when I'm describing having children and making this switch over uh, into what now I can't ever see myself not doing. I can't not see uh, marriage and family therapy from the lens of neurodiversity or neuroscience. So what got me thinking there is let's consider the fight or flight process, right? The amygdala in our brain is going to receive signals from the outside world that uh, let's say it's walking into a department store, a crowded department store, okay? Maybe it's the first time you've been in one since COVID mm -hmm. or something. Uh, there are other areas of the brain, obviously, that are involved in uh, sensory processing. So you have to consider that as well. Your brain is being bombarded by the smell of the perfume counter, the feet um, on the floor, right? People in different shoes, just the, uh, you're, you're scanning your environment because this is typical. And for someone who doesn't have integration issues or anxiety or uh, an overactive, let's just say amygdala, that's sort of the gatekeeper to say, this is a threat or this is not a threat. Um, let's say somebody's fight or flight process is just really active from trauma or from brain wiring. There could be no trauma at all. You just popped into the world with an overactive amygdala. Um, and so you're going to read tigers in that room when there's no tigers. And so you're, that's not your fault. <laughs> that is your brain processing something and then uh, getting into habits then of responding to things perhaps as if they were tigers when they're not. And so then you have this hypervigilance and a defensiveness and a self-protective sort of instinct that runs up all your cortisol, runs up everything, really, really stresses you out and you're burnt out and you've just walked into the department store, mm -hmm. right? Or you're going through your marriage like this where you're just always on edge. Um, that's the fight kind of response, self-protective, defensive, maybe mm -hmm. lashing out in criticism just to get things to stop. You know, um, and also then maybe your amygdala is set to freeze 
maybe instead of walking to that department store and you're on edge and you're looking all around and you're kind of getting through there quickly to, uh, or you're combative in some way, like you're being irritable to people or something, maybe it's freeze. You turn around and walk away. Like that's a little bit of flight also, right? But you're, you're just shutting down. It's just too much. And I see that in marriages all the time where people's brains are just stuck on either fight or flight or freeze. And sometimes there's a biological reason for that. There could be trauma underlying that or um, ADHD folks like myself, everything comes at us very fast, everything. And so it's not that we have an under amount of tension. It's the, <laughs> it's the worst name for a brain type ever. We do not have a deficit of attention. We have too much attention. Our brains pay attention to everything and we have trouble putting them in order to say what, is, what needs attention first. Right. And so we're just flooded with all these things, overwhelmed, feeling like a failure because we can't get to it all. And then our partner says, did you take out the trash? No, I didn't take out the trash. Can't you see? I have all these other things. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, that's fight. Or, hey, did you take out the trash? Freeze and get really meek. Oh, I'm so worthless. How could I not remember that? You know, these are very common manifestations of something that another therapist would not explain using the amygdala. And because I'm able to do that, I just see the light bulbs happen with people. Mm. I know these, you know, words always fail us on some level, but to just kind of ge like generally cover the, the type of um, brain differences that you work with, mm -hmm. you'd say ADHD, uh, somewhere on the autism spectrum, mm -hmm. um, trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, are there any other ones that um, general categories, you know, understanding that those categories are ultimately insufficient to describe a person's unique? Thank you for your sensitivity, right? <laughs> uh, that uh, words and diagnosis are extremely helpful if done correctly. Yeah. It's really hard to do it correctly. It is. Right, yeah. right now, the labels I'm just going to say the labels suck. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's no reason for ADHD to be called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. For example, right. there are seven subtypes of ADHD, um, several of which have no, uh, no connection with hyperactivity at all. So why is that in the title for everyone? And then also I've already explained that this is not a deficit of attention at all. Mm -hmm. It is a discrimination of attention right? And uh, so much more. There is, uh, for example, emotional struggles with ADHD and sensory struggles that almost no one identifies or talks about. But emotional ups and downs are very much a part of most of the types of ADHD, just as much as any of the other symptoms. But we tend to think of ADHD as something that you label a nine-year-old boy who's bouncing off the walls, and that's a disservice to women and it's a disservice to everyone, really, if that's your narrow focus. And I can't tell you how many times I'll be advocating on behalf of one of my clients who is trying to get a referral and maybe they're trying to use their insurance. And so they're not able to maybe go to where I've referred to them because some of the good, some of the good guys are not on panels, mm -hmm. you know, and so then they've signed a release of information form so that I can catch the psychiatrist up or the psychologist, whoever's doing the assessment, and they'll say, well, why do you want me to test this person for ADHD? They're doing great in their job. They're doing great at school. It's, they don't realize sometimes the level of overcompensation that's happening and that emotional ups and downs and sensory issues are just as valid as asking, well, how's your work performance? 
How's your school performance? So I, I work with people like that who have sort of fallen under the radar um, or people who have said, well, I was diagnosed at age five and I, not, I haven't really thought about it since. I took Ritalin for a little bit or, um, you know, I, uh, I was told that I had a learning challenge. I think I'm dyslexic, but yeah, I don't know. I, it's just school's been harder for me. So I've just, I've learned my strategies. Wait, do you think that's going on in my marriage now? What, how does, I mean, I'm, I'm working with people who are starting to ask themselves that question or honestly, people are coming to me because I have a good reputation as a marriage counselor in general. And then I'm one of the only people I'm realizing that asks very quickly. Have you ever been told you have a brain difference or have you ever suspected that your brain is different? And it, you would not believe how many people say, well, yeah, actually I'm dyslexic, but I've never really thought about it. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how that, how I relate to that diagnosis or how that, that, how that affects my relationships with others. Or my child just got diagnosed. This is a very common one. My child just got diagnosed autistic and I'm starting to realize that my husband might be or I'm starting to realize that maybe I might be. I'm doing a lot of research, but I, I just don't fit the mold. Do you think this is still for me? And that's when we talk about the mold being broken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the mold is based on stereotypes and a lot of good research, a lot of bad research. And so we, we sort through that and say, well, do you need a label at all? Maybe you do, because maybe you need some work accommodations or something. There's a little bit of a game there, right? Without a diagnosis, sometimes you can't have access to services or the Americans with Disability Act or something at work. Uh, you might have a hard time with advocacy, but it's up to the person. Disclosure and diagnosis is up to the person. It is nothing I will push and uh, something that every person has to make for themselves, a decision for themselves. But often it can lead to a lot of relief and self-advocacy and hopefully not further discrimination but that is a reality for some people. And they're watching their kids even get discriminated against instead of access to services, or maybe it's an up and down mix of both. So I know there's a lot of hesitation and controversy around the diagnosis process, but mm-hmm. long way to say that I work with people with any range of issues from autism to uh, dyslexia to just general unspecified learning challenges um, or uh, communication challenges, uh, things that, have a label or don't have a label. Um, yeah, it, these these truths show up in lots of different areas. You know, like we can find uh-huh. them in the scientific realm or in wisdom traditions and things like that too. But that, like, a lot of times our gift is kind of wrapped up in the thing that causes us a lot of trouble. <laughs> like, you know, just from a slightly different angle or like with a little bit, not quite enough sleep. You know, the thing that the thing that is your greatest asset can feel like your greatest curse, you know. Strengths and weaknesses are uniquely related. You're absolutely correct. And this is a foundational principle that I teach my couples Mm. because the very things that drew you to your partner, right? Their strengths, right, are the very things that statistically after about five to seven years are just going to be rubbing on you, right? Oh, I was drawn to his quiet strength. And then five years, you're thinking, he never talks. I married a robot. You know, I was drawn to his consistency, but now there's, you know, we're all doing the same routine or actually this is, there's such a withdrawal here, quote unquote withdrawal. Um, Really, when you've stopped looking at things from a strength perspective and you've started just focusing on all the ways that your partner's failing you or that you're failing yourself. 
And so I, I do not operate from a zone of toxic positivity. I will always validate the challenge. I, I hope you've heard me do that several times, mm -hmm. even in this interview. Um, but there is just a paradigm shift that needs to happen to understanding that our strengths and weaknesses are related. It's a strength that your husband is this calm, steady rock. When that's out of alignment, when that's out of balance, it may look like he's so steady that he's withdrawn kind of to keep that steadiness. And you're reacting to that absence instead of being drawn to his steadiness. That's such a relief to kind of view it that way because then you just, okay, this is what's going on um, rather than trying to force the other person into your rubric of how they should be acting or vice versa. Um, I don't think people do that on purpose, but right, that right. ends up happening. Um, and so when I call out that dynamic, people are generally kind of surprised. Like, well, I didn't wake up today demanding that they meet my need, but that's mm -hmm. what you're doing. Yeah. I didn't wake up today just totally criticizing my partner for being who they are, but that's what you're doing and vice yeah. versa. They're both doing it to themselves. And so we had to slow down, reduce the defensiveness, reduce the criticism. And it starts by seeing yourself in a healthier light and knowing what is changeable and what is unchangeable about you mm -hmm. and learning good boundaries back and forth and learning to work with all these things instead of just kind of white knuckling it to use a, an addiction term, instead mm -hmm. of like white knuckling it or trying to be something that you're not. People are so afraid. Well, but if I accept my uh, husband's autism, if I accept my wife's ADHD, if I accept this or that, or the other, then I'm enabling it. You know, like, I, I don't want to, I don't want them to use it as an excuse. They're using it as an excuse, right? All right. Some people may use something as an excuse, a diagnosis, mm -hmm. a personality care. There are people that will do that. Okay. A lot of times that's because they're in a stuck mode or they don't know another way. That's a personal thing that they need to work through. All right. But the majority of my clients never use any of these things as an excuse. And it hurts them to their core if their spouse is accusing them and actually maybe even withholding acceptance and support because they're afraid that then that's going to enable their partner to just walk all over them or for like the diagnosis to rule the show or something. And I say, no, no. <laughs> Self-acceptance and other acceptance does not mean enabling. Yeah. It means trying to find the right supports and talking about the ways that their brain may hurt you sometimes. But we have to get back to the basics. Are they maliciously hurting you because they've lost their keys? Right. Are they do that on purpose? You know, okay, it's very hard for them to keep a job. Okay, are they doing that on purpose? Mm -hmm. What do we need to do to support that? And yes, you've probably burnt out at this point trying to be their prefrontal cor cortex and to, to do too much for them. Let's back you off so that then this person can grow and get supports outside of you because you are that's not going to be sustainable for you. And that is enabling. All right. So how do we come to some dynamic where we get the right supports involved so you both can be the best version of yourself as cheesy as that sounds? Yes. And many counselors are very good counselors. I don't want anybody to be scared away from therapy. Uh -huh. Right. But if your brain is a little different and you know it, or you suspect it, you need to find someone who understands that, who is putting in their bio profile. I understand the brain. Mm -hmm. Your brain is involved here because you may get a really great anxiety counselor and they're going to give all these traditional anxiety methods. But if she misses, or if he misses that there's a compulsive kind of component or your brain is wired slightly different, uh, you both are going to start scratching your heads out a little, little bit. And hopefully she wouldn't tell you that you failed her therapy, um, but you may quit. You may quit because you're not seeing results. And that person may wonder, well, where did that client go? Mm -hmm. 
And then the cycle never changes because sometimes yeah. they're not saying, well, why am I losing clients? <laughs> so a lot of people are just stuck on their traditional methods that work for their traditional populations. Mm -hmm. And so I love the cases that are coming to me a little bit, the people that are coming to me, sorry, not the cases that are coming to me, the people that are coming to me where they'll tell me I've been to three therapists. I've tried anger management before. I've tried this before. I've tried that before. And they've never had somebody consider the brain. All right. That's it for this episode of Why Therapy. Thanks so much to my guest, Kelly Willard, for joining us. If you'd like to hear more about her work, you can visit her at loveallthebrains.com. And if you'd like to hear more about my work, the services I provide for therapists, or you want help producing your own podcasts or other web content, you can visit me at mattshed.com. That's M-A-T-T-S-H-E-D-D.com. Or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram at Matt Shedd, M-A-T-T-S-H-E-D-D. The theme song that you're hearing in the background was written and performed by Jordan Detweiler. Thank you so much for joining us, and we're already looking forward to next time. <laughs>